Well, it is hard to describe how excited I am about this weekend as we launch our West Campus on the west side of Evansville. If you are worshiping with us at Crossroads West this morning, I want to welcome you. We are so glad and excited that you're here worshiping with us. All of us here at Newburgh, can, can we just celebrate and welcome those of us who are worshiping at Crossroads West? <clears throat> Uh, this is uh, such an exciting time in, in the life of our church. You know, now because we are one church in, in multiple locations, one thing that we're learning is we've got to be clear and simple with what we communicate and how we communicate. And, and so just one little thing that you might notice in the future is that we are going to rely more and more upon our website uh, to communicate things rather than the bulletin uh, because we are now in uh, two different locations. And so there are differences sometimes between the campuses, although we are one church, uh, there are at times differences, and, and so we're going to rely more upon the website uh, to communicate things. You, you can find out more information about that by looking in your bulletin and, and looking at specific links as, as far as knowing exactly what I mean by that. Now, I am really excited about uh, this series that, that we're starting uh, today, uh, but before we get started, I just want you to imagine with me for a minute that you're invited to a friend's house, and there's a party going on. Nobody really knows each other, but, but you show up, and it's kind of an awkward environment. Have you ever been there before? Do you know what I'm talking about? And so as you walk through the front door, someone says, hey, uh, here's a name tag, but here's the catch. You're not allowed to write down your name. The catch is that you have to define yourself in some other way than using your name. And so you've got to come up with a title or a label in three words or less to describe who you are. And so the question is, what, what would you write down on that name tag? How would you define yourself? All right, there, there's no doubt that some of us would probably pretty naturally define ourselves based upon our job, based upon our profession. That's very normal to do in our culture, right? That's kind of one of the first things we tell people whenever we meet them for the first time. So you might write down physician's assistant. You might write down nurse, teacher, contractor, maybe a doctor, lawyer, or realtor. It's very normal for us to define ourselves based upon our career, Right? Now, maybe that's not the first thing that comes to mind, but you might define yourself based upon a belief that you have, and, and maybe that's aligning yourself with a specific political party or maybe a kind of church that was really influential in your past. So you might write down Methodist, Catholic, Presbyterian, Lutheran, something like that. Now, by show of hands, how many of you would be quick to write down the fan base of a, a, a sports team that you cheer for? Anybody? Okay, like two of us, three of us, good. Uh, West, we, we see you, all right. You, you might write down Boilermaker or, or Hoosier or uh, Cubs fan or Colts fan or Louisville Cardinal fan, right? And if you're a Kentucky fan, you, you really don't need to write anything down uh, because it's only a matter of time until we know who you are, all right? <laughs> it's quick, quick to come up in conversation about how your team is going to be the best this year that it's ever been. We know, all right? And so you don't need to put Wildcat. Uh, others of us, if we're being more honest and a little bit more vulnerable, it's a safe environment. We, we might write down something that describes an event in our past. It's a, maybe a wound or an experience that we went through. Maybe you'd write down cancer survivor, Maybe former criminal, convicted felon, maybe you'd write down veteran. What, what name would you write down in three words or less if you could describe who you are without using your, your first name? 
Now, it's not that whatever comes to mind isn't true about you, but the question is, is that the truest thing about who you are as an individual? So at some point in the next 10 minutes or so, what I want you to do is I want you just to think about whatever that uh, word or phrase is that describes who you are, and I just want you to write it down on a bulletin, maybe a piece of paper, or maybe pull out your phone and just write down what that word is. Okay, nobody's going to see it. This is, just, but this is just for you to do. I'm going to connect the dots later on uh, in just a few minutes, but, but I want you to do that and just be thinking about what that word in three or words in three words or less would be to describe who you are as a person, and uh, again, we're, we're going to get back to it, okay? How would you define yourself? So for the next six weeks, we're going to be walking through a book in the Bible called Ephesians, and and this is really a letter that was written about uh, 2,000 years ago by a guy named Paul, and and, uh, it was addressed to some churches in the city of Ephesus. The city of Ephesus was a pretty influential city in the ancient world, okay? And uh, there was a lot of wealth, a lot of affluence, and and Paul lived there for a time, and so this entire book is, is about reminding these Christians, reminding these believers about their true identity, who they really were. And here's why Paul continuously reminded them of this. He lived there. Right? He, he knew their context. He, he knew that constantly in the society where they lived, they, they were faced with this pressure to define themselves based upon what they do. They, they had this uh, temptation to think, I'm, I'm just as good as my most recent success story or the relationships that I have or, or, or the depth of my bank account. And so repeatedly throughout this letter, Paul says, look, that, that may be true about you, but, but that's not how God sees you. That, that's not where your worth and your value can be found. And you see, how we see ourselves is, is so important. Our identity is more important than you may realize. Now, what's interesting about this book is Paul doesn't just step in and immediately start correcting some of their behaviors. He doesn't just give them a, a list of, of do's and don'ts, do this, avoid that, don't do that. No, no, no. He, over half of the letter, the first half at least, is spent reminding these believers about who they are in Jesus, their identity. Why would he do that? Well, because our behavior is simply symptomatic of our identity. Behavior is rarely the issue. You do get that, right? No, behavior is simply the result of a false or or deluded version of who we think we are. Let let me say one of the themes in this book like this. It says, how you see yourself determines how you live. You see, how you see yourself determines how you live. All right, so our our identity is really the root of our behavior. And so if there's bad behavior taking place or maybe unwise choices, you've got to take a step back and ask yourself, who do I think I am? How am I seeing myself? Okay. Another theme in this book goes like this. Our identity is defined by our idols. Our identity is defined by our idols. In other words, whatever it is that we worship in our life, whatever it is that that has our affection, our attention, and our focus, we are looking to that thing, that person, that emotion, maybe that that way of life to find our value and worth. Here's why. The center of our worship has more power over us than we realize. And, And so we go to whatever that idol is, although it may not be some statue, some golden calf, we go to that idol Because that idol tells us how good we are if we measure up or not. And so a lot of us, our our idol may be your career. What does that have to do with our identity? Well, when when your idol is your career, you think that you are just as good as maybe your most successful quarter as a salesman. Or you get really hypersensitive whenever somebody critiques you on your presentation. Why? Because you felt like they were attacking who you are as a person. You get that? Or some of us, our, our idols might be acceptance. 
And so whenever your boyfriend or girlfriend broke up with you, you immediately had to jump to another relationship because whenever you were single, you you just felt like, I'm empty, I'm not whole. And so maybe that's your idol. Perhaps your idol is your spouse. That explains maybe why some tension is happening in your marriage. How does that play out? What does that have to do with our identity? Well, when our spouse is our idol, we put a lot of pressure upon him or her to fulfill some need or want that we have that ultimately at the end of the day, they can't fulfill. You see, whenever we do that, we are looking to that individual to satisfy something that only God can give us. And so maybe that's why you're hypersensitive around your spouse. You're looking for him or her to fulfill a need that ultimately, at the end of the day, he or she can't fulfill. Your spouse will lead to disappointment. Why? Because he or she is broken. And so this letter is all about saying, hey, here's who you are and, and here's who you're not, okay? And this is really important, and it's so important that we can't afford to miss out on this, okay? So if you have your Bibles or Bible app, I want you to go ahead and turn to the uh, book of Ephesians. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, there should be a black Bible right in front of you. If you're worshiping with us here at Newburgh, if you're at West, uh, it should be on the chair right below you, that black Bible. Turn to the back of it, and Ephesians can be found right in between the book of Galatians and Philippians in the back third uh, of Scripture, okay? We're going to begin in chapter 1, and uh, uh, this, this book, this letter is six chapters long, and uh, one scholar appropriately defined this book as being all about identity formation for those who follow Jesus. Okay, so, so what does it really look like to, to have a new worth and value and identity as a person? Well, well, check out what Paul says in chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. He opens up the letter by saying, To God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, notice how, how Paul addressed these Christians by referring to them as, as holy people. They, they, they were faithful. Now, another word to describe holy people, the actual original word in the Greek is actually the word that we translate saint, okay? Now, saint, in our minds, we immediately think of, of some old picture of some guy in church history who was maybe really influential, some hyper-spiritual, really religious person who did a lot of good. Is that really what a saint is? Now, all growing up, I never had a desire to be a saint because whenever I saw those paintings of different saints in the past, they always just looked miserable, right? It's like, do you think it's not spiritual to smile or something? Like, lighten up, you know? And so is that really what what a saint is? Well, according to what Paul says right here, a saint, it has nothing to do with what what we do. It has nothing to do with with our actions or what we've done. No, if you are in Christ, you, you are a saint, A saint is distinctive, not because of what we do, but simply because we've chosen to unite our life with with, with Jesus Christ. That's why Paul described our condition uh, before God as being in Christ over 36 times throughout this letter. Now, here's the thing. If you have made the decision to believe in Jesus Christ and trust him, then God sees you as a saint. You are in Christ. Now, let me say this. That doesn't mean that you always act like a saint. All right, turn to the person beside you and say, you don't always act like a saint. Yeah, amen to that, right? You don't always act like a saint, but being a saint in Jesus means that you your brokenness and your past, it, it doesn't define you any longer. And although these Christians had been following Jesus for a while, Paul, Paul never got away from reminding these people about the basic truth of who they were, right? I mean, after all, you, you repeatedly remind people of things in your life, of, of stuff that's really important, things that you don't want them to forget. You know what I'm talking about? 
This past week, uh, my wife Savannah has been in Africa, and uh, I don't know what makes her braver, the fact that she's actually been in Africa for about seven days, or the fact that she left our three kids all under the age of five with me for the entire week. Yeah, I mean, kudos to her for doing that. And before she left, she's been preparing for this for weeks and weeks and weeks. I mean, she's written down in a notebook some detailed things about what I'm supposed to do each day, medications uh, some of our kids take, what food to pack for school, when to drop them off, and bedtimes, and and this and that. And, And writing it in a notebook wasn't good enough, so she also emailed it to me and She also then put it on my calendar. My wife was also wise enough to then include my assistant Andy on some of the details so that she could remind me. And come to find out a couple days ago, uh, my wife also notified some of our best friends to just check up on me throughout the course of the week. Our babysitter has been on call. And and I got to tell you, it's been a little bit of a struggle this week because the kids get out of hand and they are bouncing from wall to wall at night. And so whenever they just get out of control, that's bath time, okay? I mean, that, that, that's bath time with, with bubbles, and, and whenever the kids finally settle down, that's when I crawl out of the bath, I dry off, and then I, I put them to bed, okay? You think I'm kidding. And so I thought to myself, why in the world would Savannah remind me over and over and over again of the same details? Well, here's why. Because she knows who I am, Right? And you see, you you only communicate things over and over again to people that you love that that you really can't afford to miss out on. You you can't afford to to overlook some of those things. And so throughout the letter of Ephesians, Paul looks for every possible way to weave in reminders about our identity in Jesus Christ. And so what if, what if this is something that we can't afford to miss out on? Skip to verse 4. Paul says it like this. For he, talking about God, chose us in him, in Jesus, before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight and love. He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one that he loves. Now hang with me here for just a moment because we've got a lot of teaching to work through in this text. There are a few verses in all the Bible that is more polarizing and has, uh, there's been more debate over the course of 20 centuries than this verse right here. What is Paul saying? All right, so on, on one side of the aisle, you, you have those who would say that, that, that God chooses who is saved and, and who's not saved, okay? He, he chooses that beforehand. And so along this line of thinking, that means that, that God actually creates people knowing beforehand that, that they are going to be subjected to hell for all of eternity. And, and people who, who maybe find themselves in this camp would say that because we are so sinful, we are so broken, and, and we've got darkness in us, we don't have the ability to even make the right decision and acknowledge that we need to be saved, that we need a Savior. And so this is a a kind of set of teachings or doctrines that that you might hear referred to in the church as Calvinism. All right, God God is kind of the micromanager of of all things. He he chooses beforehand who's saved and who's not. Now, on the other side of the aisle, some interpret this verse as saying that, that God doesn't choose who's saved. He doesn't choose who, who's going to spend eternity with him after we die. He simply chooses what uh, benefits, rewards, or, or maybe uh, blessings that we received for, for those who do choose him. 
All right, and so those in this camp would say that, that God has chosen everybody, but not everybody has chosen God back, okay? That, that's upon us to use our free will and say, God, you've, chosen, you, you've evidently shown your love for me, therefore I choose to enter into a relationship with you. Those who find themselves in that category, you might hear referred to as, as Arminianism, okay? Now here's what I don't want you to miss about this verse, regardless of which side of the aisle that you fall upon, Okay? Sometimes we can get so narrowed in on a specific interpretation that we really miss out on what is actually being said in the verse. And so don't miss this. You can't put the sovereign creator God in a box. All right, he, he is the creator. He, he has always existed. He, he has existed since the beginning of time in our finite created minds. We can't even comprehend that, right? God is not defined by time. And so if we can't even wrap our minds around that, what makes us think that, that we can understand who God is just in a few verses here? In fact, God told a man by the name of Isaiah at one point in time, look, my ways are not your ways. Your thoughts are, are not my thoughts. The point of this verse here, the point of this verse is to magnify Jesus Christ. Right? It's, it's to lift up what he has done. And so here's at the end of the day, here, here's what I want you to understand about this verse. When it's all said and done, life after death, when it comes to life after death, nobody, all right, nobody is going <clears> to <throat> um, be in a place, when it comes to life after death, nobody is chosen or rejected against his or her will. All right, so you can't say, well, I, I want to be chosen, but I'm, I'm not chosen by God. I'm not like that. That's not true. All right, picture this whole idea of predestination, which simply means to decide beforehand. It's kind of like a cruise ship heading towards a specific destination. Everybody on board that ship are the chosen ones, are, are sometimes referred to as the elect in Scripture. All right, now, the invitation has been given by, by God, who's maybe the captain of the ship, for everybody to jump on board that ship, but not everybody chooses to get on board. Not everybody says, hey, I'm in on that. Now, there are even some who say, okay, I, I'm going to get on board the ship. And then as the ship takes off, some choose to jump off into the water, possibly proving that maybe they were never really saved to begin with. They were never really in Christ to begin with. And, and so God has extended the invitation for everybody to be on board that ship. But unfortunately, not everybody accepts. Some say, Thank, thanks, but no thanks, right? The Bible tells us that God is waiting for one more person to repent so, so that no one perishes. Take a look at the next key thing that Paul says in verse 5. It says, those in Christ have received an adoption to sonship. What, what's that mean? You see, adoption is one of the most common metaphors all throughout the Bible to describe what Jesus Christ has done for us. It, it's the process that God has really used to tell us who we are. Jesus, catch this, Jesus chose us even when he had every reason to reject us. All right, he chose us even when he had every reason to reject us. Adoption is that moment when the forgotten, the marginalized, the overlooked can finally belong. Our identity, our identity is found in what happens after our adoption is finalized. The Bible tells us that we then become children of God. We become his sons. We become his daughters. Now notice that we don't read that he has predestined us for adoption to sonship and daughtership. All right, there's no female modification here. Why is that? I mean, that doesn't seem very politically correct, Paul. I mean, come on. Now, including daughtership in the original text in the Greek would have diluted its meaning in the first century world. Why is that? 
Well, because in the ancient Roman world, nobody adopted daughters. Females did not have rights in their society. Only adopted sons had the the, the legal right to receive the inheritance of their mom and dad who adopted them. And so it's as if Paul is saying here in, in this text that, That this world that we live in, it's like an orphanage where we long to be chosen and we long to belong. And whether you're male, female, Jew, Greek, no matter the color of your skin, this promise is is true for you. You can receive the rights, the same rights that sons had in the ancient world. Now, sometimes you won't fully appreciate your adoption until you realize how how bad life is in the orphanage. Sometimes you won't fully appreciate the adop- your adoption until you realize how terrible and awful life is in the orphanage. One couple here at Crossroads recently told me about the conditions of some orphanages over in Russia where uh, they adopted some of their children. About 20 years ago or so, the, the country had numerous orphanages all throughout, all throughout the, the, the nation full of children whose parents couldn't take care of them for whatever reason, and, and yet few people were willing or able to adopt them. The birth parents had the legal right to actually drop them off at the orphanages, but the intention of the parents was to come back and retrieve the children at a later time in their life when they could actually care for him or her. Maybe they had the, the financial means to do so, or maybe they didn't want to change his diapers or her diapers for a season, and so they They would drop the children off at the orphanage and never give over the rights for that child to be adopted. And then maybe, maybe a few years later, they would come back and retrieve their child. And so what ended up happening is that there was a generation of children in Russia isolated and lonely during some key developmental years of their life. And you know what? They couldn't be adopted because the parents intended to pick them up later on in life. And yet many didn't. You see, God never intended, he never intended for orphanages to be the place where children identify their worth and value. And so let me ask you this. If children aren't meant for the orphanage, then is it possible that we were created for something greater than this world has to offer? Is it possible that that the metaphor, if we carry this out, is that this world, it's kind of like that orphanage. Paul's point was saying that When we're adopted, we receive all the inheritance. What belongs to Jesus now belongs to us. We get all the benefits that that he provides. Skip down to verse 13. What's the proof that we've been chosen, you ask? Well, he says it like this. And and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel. In other words, the good news of what God has done, your salvation. When you believed, you, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Being in Christ is more than just having a relationship with Jesus, okay? It means that you are now one with him. You're actually unified with the sovereign warrior king of the entire universe. Now, the proof of our union with Christ is that the Holy Spirit, God himself, actually takes up residence inside of us, believe it or not. Paul used some transactional terms here in this text to illustrate the proof of our inheritance. He he said that the Spirit is kind of like a a deposit or maybe a down payment, proving that, that we really have been adopted, we've been saved. You see, Jesus conquered death so that the living God could actually live inside of us. Now, whenever the Holy Spirit is talked about in the Bible, it's always equated with power, authority, something supernatural or miraculous is always happening and is always uh, describing the work of the Holy Spirit. At one point, there was a little boy named David who faced a giant by the name of Goliath. The Bible tells us that the Spirit came upon David. He faced the giant, killed him, and then cut off his head. That didn't make sense, but the Spirit of God was upon him. 
The Bible tells us that the Spirit came upon a little teenage girl named Mary, and she was a virgin, and yet the Holy Spirit said, I'm going to conceive you with the living God, the Messiah, the promised one, Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 3, we're told that two guys, Peter and John, are in the city of Jerusalem. Jesus has just gone back up to heaven. There's some guy who's lame. He's been that way for years. And, and they tell him, hey, you know what? Stand up and, and rise in the name of Jesus Christ. The Spirit came upon Peter and John in that moment, gave them the power to, to heal this man in that moment. My voice just cracked right there. Wow. Come on, Holy Spirit. I need, need some more voice here. <clears throat> All right now, if you, are, if you are in Christ, then you have the Spirit living inside you. This doesn't mean that you necessarily feel different before or after you become a Christian. It just means that you agree with God that Jesus is Lord, and, and that's good news. You see, the moment you trust Jesus, according to what Paul said, you are sealed by God's Spirit. That, that word seal in verse 13 is what you would do before sending a letter to an individual in the mail. You would warm some wax up, and then before it, it hardened, you would stamp your personal seal on the letter. And so the, the, the picture that Paul is getting at here, the, the idea is that the Holy Spirit is God's mark on the outside of what he's done for us on the inside. And so what does the Holy Spirit do for us today in a more practical sense? Well, the Spirit gives us discernment and wisdom when we make decisions in life. Holy Spirit might nudge you or prompt you to have a conversation with somebody who's really lonely or feels overlooked. The Holy Spirit maybe puts you in some circumstances where you can receive some encouragement you didn't even know that you needed. The Holy Spirit tells us that uh, in Scripture that, that he comforts us. He gives us peace in the midst of, of a lot of uh, pain in this world. The Bible also tells us that during those moments when God doesn't make sense, when we're really angry at God and, and we're just frustrated because of some things that he's allowed us to endure, in that moment, Romans chapter 8, Paul tells us that the Spirit intercedes on our behalf, goes to the Father, and prays for us. That's what the Spirit does. So Paul's saying, look, you, you are not who you think you are. You are not what you've done. You aren't who people say that you are. You are who God says that you are, and, and this is good news. You, you are an heir. You, you're no longer an orphan. This means that we are blameless. We are righteous. We are holy. We are redeemed. We're, we're restored. We're, we're free. Now let me time out here for just a second, okay? I don't tell you this to boost your self-esteem. Right, I don't tell you this to, to give you the confidence to finally muster up the courage to ask her out this week, okay? Now, let me be straight with you for just a minute. Do you know who has the biggest issue with my identity in Jesus Christ? Me. Why is that? Well, if I'm honest, sometimes it just seems too good to be true. Like, really? That, that's true about who I am? And if I'm, if we're all being honest, I bet... I'm not the only one who struggles with that. Oftentimes there's a disconnect between who God says that I am and how I live. And so let me ask you this question. It goes like this. If we are heirs, if we are heirs, then why do we live like orphans? All right, if we're heirs, why do we live like orphans? Children that have been adopted are prone to struggle with what psychologists call uh, reactive attachment disorder. Now, this is when children fail to develop certain social skills or bond with others. Adopted children with uh, reactive attachment disorder tend to be very strong-willed and, and independent because during their more, their more formable time as a baby, 
They either didn't have a mom or dad to care for them, to love on them, or that child learned to just be very independent because they were constantly hopping from home to home in the foster care system. Now, sometimes the, the symptoms of this disorder may not be detected until years after the adoption has actually taken place. It's almost like the children are so used to being rejected and isolated that they don't even know how to respond to the fact that, that a mom and dad came to them and said, hey, I, we want you to be a part of our family. We, we choose you. And so they put up this wall and say, I don't get that. And I think so often that that's the case with our faith. Therefore, along the way, what we do is we make certain exchanges because we fail to adapt to the reality of who we are in Jesus. What are some of those exchanges? Well, let's wrap up by looking at just a few of them. The first one goes like this. We exchange healing for attention. We exchange healing for attention. That's proof that maybe we're living like an orphan when we're an heir. Now, part of the inheritance we receive in Christ is is becoming whole, free, redeemed. Now, that doesn't mean that we're going to experience full restoration and freedom in this life, but we can start. Heaven isn't something that we have to wait on. It can be our reality here and now. Paul said it like this in, in his letter to the Romans. He said, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. Now, here's the thing. You don't have to live the way that you've lived so far. Paul says here that that there's a better way to live, and and that's by being in Christ and, and living in the power of the Holy Spirit. We can be free from slavery. Stockholm Syndrome is an actual psychological condition where uh, hostages actually form an emotional bond with their, with their captor. Now, it doesn't make sense. It's totally irrational because the hostages end up siding with the very people who maybe harmed them whenever they took over a bank or they held them hostage and, and abused them. Now, as backwards as this sounds for us, there's something appealing about being a victim because if you're honest, you get a lot of attention. People feel sorry for you. They feel bad. You get a lot of sympathy. And honestly, I know that there are a lot of you here right now, you find your identity in being a victim. You find your identity in in what's been done to you, some past experiences that you're not proud of. After all, it it was someone else's fault. You you were treated poorly. You're not really the person to blame. You just happened to be in in that place at a bad time. Maybe you're quick to judge people by their actions. When when you make the same decisions, you make the same mistake. Rather than judging your actions, you judge yourself by your intentions. Now look, I get it. I get it that you have your excuses. And I'm sure that, that if you wanted to, and you look back and you, you realize some of the victimizations that, that, that you've been put through, you can find enough people who will side with you and say, yeah, you have a right to be angry. You, you have a right to, to, to not move beyond that. Well, let me just ask you this. At what point are you going to accept responsibility? All right, well, what's it going to take for you to swallow your pride and maybe own some of your mistakes? Because what's much easier What's much easier is for us to wallow in the fact that we get a lot of attention because of what we've been through rather than actually claiming this inheritance of living in freedom. Now, here's the thing. Orphans are victims. Orphans are victims, but heirs. Heirs are victors. And so what do you choose? Our inheritance comes with the promise by the same power that raised Jesus from the dead can live inside of us today. But you know what? If we're honest, some of us, we just need help learning to live like that. 
That's why one of the best things that you can do is to get plugged into some kind of small group, some kind of community where one, you can come alongside one another and encourage one another. Now, a lot of us, we have a lot of hurts, habits, hangups, maybe from our past, and, and it's just really hard to move beyond what happened to you. This is why support groups kicking off tomorrow at Crossroads and on our West Campus is going to be a great next step for you. Now, some of us, we're living like an orphan, and we need help living like an heir. And, and so it's one thing to know that, but it's another to actually be encouraged and supported along the way. And so support groups are, are made up of a bunch of men and women here at church. No judgment is given for whatever it is that you're dealing with. It's just a bunch of men and women who have struggled or are struggling with some of the things, things that you have. All right, things like maybe you just need to learn how to better handle your finances, manage, manage your money, manage a budget. Or perhaps you served in our armed forces and you saw and experienced some things that you just you can't get out of your mind. And so we have a group for that called Point Man where men and women get, gather together and say, hey, me too. I've been there before. Here's what it looks like to maybe find some healing. Maybe you've lost a loved one this past year. Maybe you've walked through a divorce. Whatever it is, whatever it is, we've got a support group willing to help you learn what it looks, learn to live in this life of freedom that, that God offers us. You, you can find more information about our support groups on our website, cccgo.com. They kick off tomorrow. I want to encourage you to check them out, all right? Here's the second exchange that, that we do when we live as an orphan. We exchange unity for uniformity. What do I mean by that? <clears throat> well, unity and uniformity really aren't the same thing. Uniformity is merely an illusion of unity because everything looks the same on the surface, you see, when Jesus adopted you, you immediately became a part of a family called the church. It's this community. Now, it's, it's a family that's really dysfunctional at times. It's really broken. It's kind of always been that way. All right, picture uh, the Griswolds on Christmas vacation. That kind of describes the church a little bit. But being one with Jesus Christ means that you are also one with everyone else who is in Christ as well. Just because our DNA is different and we may look different doesn't make us less a part of this family, all right? You see, Jesus eliminated all the barriers of, of race, religion, and heritage. None of us are better than one another. Why? Because we've all sinned. We're, we're all a part of the problem. And yet, apart from Jesus Christ, we would have no hope. None of us are better than one another. That's why it really concerns me when I hear people point out different churches and say, you know what, that, that's kind of a, a white church, or, or that, that's an African-American church, or, or that's a blue-collar church, that's a white-collar church, that's a church or, or that's an old church. Why is it that we define churches based upon things that God doesn't really care about? We are, we are one family and we define aspects of, uh, in our family that honestly just don't matter. You see, the biggest threat to unity in the church is uniformity. Why? Because everything on the surface looks the same. We all talk the same. We maybe vote the same. We believe the same. We act the same. But you see, true unity, it's about coming together in spite of our differences. We don't have to sacrifice our beliefs or convictions. It just means that we approach one another in humility and say, hey, I, I disagree, but at the end of the day, we're brothers. We're, we're sisters in Jesus Christ. That's what it looks like to, to be a part of this family. You see, our adoption isn't contingent upon a litmus test. Our adoption is contingent upon a blood test. Why? Because we've been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's good news for us. So let me ask you, in what ways, in what ways have you maybe confused unity for uniformity in your life? How have you maybe made others feel like second-class citizens in the church because you see things differently, you don't agree, or, again, you, you, have your, you have your reasons. And you may not know this, 
But because of your generosity, over the past 10 days or so, uh, we sent several truckloads of supplies and clothing down to the victims in, in Houston, Texas because of the hurricane there. And uh, I just want to thank you for that. And you, you know what that's called? That's called being a part of a family, for acknowledging that all people deserve dignity and worth, although they live in a different state, although they look differently, and although that they live differently, we're saying, hey, we're coming alongside you. That's what unity is all about. And so well done. Because of your generosity, we can do things like that. Now, here, here's something else. <clears throat> it goes like this. Number, uh, number four, we exchange repentance for comparison. We exchange uh, repentance for comparison. Now, that word repentance is a fancy Bible word that, that basically means to turn around or to think differently. And so the image is that, that you make this U-turn with, with how you think whenever you meet Jesus. And so before Jesus, you think it a certain way, you, you process and you have different motives, but then all of a sudden, because you're in Christ, you begin to think differently. You, you consciously choose, well, well, that's not true anymore, or, or I, I'm not gonna do that anymore. So it's this decision in your mind to think differently, to make a U-turn with your thoughts. You see, one of the biggest obstacles to repentance, though, is justifying our sin and our brokenness by simply comparing ourselves to other people who maybe sin differently or worse than we do. And the only reason why I can think as to why someone would choose to live as an orphan rather than an heir is a total misunderstanding of where our worth and value ultimately comes from. And so if you can't think of the last time that you confessed your sin... If it's been a while since you maybe apologized to someone for something you said or did, if you can't remember the last time your thoughts and motives scared you because you realized how dark and broken they are and what you're capable of doing in a weak moment, if you've maybe recently been impressed by something that you did for God, then you know what? You're a slave. That sounds strong. That, that sounds a little bit harsh, Patrick. Well, you know what? You're a slave because it's clear by the way that you live and the way that you think that, that you believe your identity is all about what you do or what you don't do. But understand this. Our identity, our identity is received. Our identity is not achieved. All right, if it could be achieved on our behalf, then you know what we would do? We would all brag about it, right? <laughs> It'd be a big contest. Hey, here's what I did here. Here's why I'm deserving of God in this situation. If it was something that we could work for, then we would all have bragging rights, but God says, no, it really has nothing to do with you. It's about how good I am. It's about grace. Grace is the undeserved favor of me in your life, God says. So as we wrap up, here's something I want you to do this week, okay? A few minutes ago, I asked you to write down a word or a phrase that describes who you are on a sheet of paper, maybe on your phone, I want you to identify two days this week, okay? This is not a big thing. It's not gonna take any time at all. I'm not asking you to run a mile, a marathon, or anything like this. I just want you to identify two days this week where before your day gets started, you're, you're gonna set aside some time to reflect upon a sentence that, that I'm gonna have you complete here in just a minute. You see, the reality is we're, we're a slave because somewhere along the way, we believe that we're an orphan rather than an heir. Well, how did we get to that place? Well, because we started believing some lies and labels about ourselves that just weren't true. And so the best way to combat this false identity that we have, the enslavement, is to replace those lies with truth. Now, it doesn't mean that things are just gonna immediately change overnight. It's not some button that you press or switch that you flip, but it's a conscious effort. It's a discipline on our part to think differently. That's what repentance is all about. And so Whatever you think your worth is, whatever name or phrase that you put upon yourself, I want you to complete this sentence, okay? I am more than a, what was that word? 
What was that phrase? I have been chosen by sovereign God. I've been chosen by the creator God, the one who is in control of all things. And so two days this week, would you start out your day by just reminding yourself of this over and over again. And then maybe, maybe throughout the day, whenever you think, boy, I, you're feeling insecure, you're feeling guilty, you're feeling full of shame, or you feel like, I can't believe that. You remind yourself, no, I'm, I'm chosen by sovereign God. I've been adopted. I'm an heir. I'm no longer an orphan. All right? Let's pick back up next week in chapter 2. Uh, and you do that two days this week. That, that's all I'm asking. Okay? Let's pray. And, uh, and then we'll uh, continue with things. Jesus, thank you for adopting us. I know there are a lot of us right now who are listening to my voice online, back in the chapel, maybe at, at West, that we think this is too good to be true because we know what we've done. We know how we've contributed to the mess in our life. We think that we're orphans, and yet, Lord Jesus, what, what you offer us is a chance to start over. You, you offer us a chance to, to belong, to be a part of a family called the church. And, and though this family's pretty messed up at times, it's a family that you've chosen. It's a family where we can find forgiveness, we can find redemption, and only through what you did for us on the cross, Lord Jesus, can we realize that we aren't what we do, we aren't what we haven't done, we aren't what our past says, we aren't those lies, those whispers, those labels that go on and on and on in our mind all day long. We are who you say we are. We are what you've done. Our identity is not achieved, it's, it's received. And so we thank you for that. Help us and teach us to live as the heirs that we are. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.